Well, we come now to the, the preaching of God's Word. So if you could please open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. Uh, there was an outline sheet as you walked in. I trust uh, you have got uh, one of them. Hopefully that will, will help you. Uh, it's wonderful to see you all here today. We've got some visitors this morning. Thank you for, for joining with us. And, uh, and one of the men on the stage this morning uh, had a birthday. And they're 21, so it's not me. So it's either Gus or Matt. You can have a guess. Um, so happy birthday to, to Matthew. 21st birthday and he's leading us. So thank you, Matt, and happy birthday. Um, I would lead a, sing, a song, but it wouldn't be a very good present because I'm not a very good singer. First Kings chapter 17 this morning, we're considering the widow of Zarephath, continuing uh, the series of heroines in the Bible. And the title is Unexpected Faith. Uh, but before we get into the sermon, uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day you've given to us. Uh, we know this is uh, your day. And I uh, thank you that we've been able to come to worship you. We pray that our worship was acceptable uh, in your sight. Uh, Lord, thank you now that we can take some time uh, to uh, study your word. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help me. Uh, help me to, to speak uh, clearly. Help me to speak the truth. And I pray that the Holy Spirit... Uh, would speak through me, help us to understand uh, the portion of Scripture. And uh, Lord, please remove all distractions uh, during this time. And uh, please uh, speak to us uh, in very clear ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the world of advertising, uh, there's a type of marketing called comparative advertising. And it's a strategy where a company's product or service is presented as superior when compared to a competitor. Okay, a bank or a financial institution will advertise their loans, their savings accounts and their products and will compare their fees and interest rates with their competitors endeavoring to convince consumers of their superiority. An internet company will advertise their superior speeds and cheaper rates compared to their main rivals and they will promise that their customer service is the best that's ever existed. Except we laugh at that because no internet company has good customer service. Samsung and Apple have produced advertising campaigns that seek to prove the superiority of their product by comparing it to their competitors. Now, of course, we know Apple is superior. Dan's laughing. I was, I was looking for Dan. He's in the media booth. You know, Telstra. Telstra launched the whole campaign based around the catchphrase, you don't need the best network until you do. Okay, this is a clever way to remind everyone of their superiority over their competitors. Okay, and here's the thing with this advertising technique. God has used it throughout history to prove his supremacy over his supposed rivals. And usually he does this through astonishing miracles. Now in the Bible, there are only a few times where miracles occur regularly. Okay, there are often very long periods of time where there are only a few Sometimes no miracles performed. You know, in the Old Testament, there are only two times that could be classed as a miracle era, okay, where they were more frequent and commonplace. And that's during the time of Moses and leading into Joshua and in the time of Elijah. 
And these unique influxes of miracles are all about proving the supremacy of the Lord's. It's comparative advertising, if you like. In the time of Moses, it was Yahweh's supremacy over the Egyptian pantheon of gods. You know, the story of the ten plagues. That is all about deconstructing Egypt's religious system, God by God. And then during Joshua's ministry, the the miracles that were performed, he confronted the varying gods in Canaan. And during the ministry of Elijah, it's all about Yahweh, the Lord, verse Baal. And the miracles were designed to prove the futility of Baal and the supremacy of the Lord. Now, the prophet Elijah enters the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17. And we need to understand that he's ministering in what is a very dark time. Ahab and his darling wife Jezebel are in power. Now, if you know anything about Jezebel particularly, okay, her and her husband are on the podium for the most wicked rulers in Israel's history. In fact, they probably take the gold medal. And during their reign, that there was a civil god war that was raging. Okay, that there were those who were proclaiming that Baal is God's. And then there were others proclaiming that Yahweh is God's. Now, unfortunately, as was often the case throughout Israel's history, that the number on Baal's side was growing rapidly. Especially with Ahab and Jezebel in power. They had led the people into the putrid pit of idolatry. Now this wasn't Israel's first dance with idols. They had walked the road of idolatry previously. But at this time, this was further than they had ever gone before. In the previous chapter, it's said of Ahab that he served Baal and worshipped him. That's verse 31. But then notice verse 33 of 1 Kings 16. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. And when we consider some of those kings, that is quite a staggering statement. So so the people were deeper and further into the putrid pit of idolatry than ever before. And unfortunately... Most of the people had sided with Baal and had forsaken the Lord. We read in 1 Kings 19.18 that there were only 7,000 who did not bow the knee to Baal. Now that was a lot more than Elijah thought, but still that's not that many throughout an entire empire. That would be like me saying that there's 7,000 Christians in Sydney. That's not many. And this reveals the extent of the unfaithfulness of the people to the Lord. More and more people were siding with Baal, believing and proclaiming that he is God. So what does the Lord do? Well, he goes about proving his supremacy over Baal via comparative advertising. Okay, that this is the overarching theme of this text. In the text... The Lord instructs Elijah to go and speak to the wicked king. And we ought not to underestimate 
how scary that must have been. Especially knowing that Jezebel meant she's crazy. But Elijah, he was faithful. And he went, he obeyed, and he informed the king that the Lord was going to withhold the dew and the rain. And this would end up being withheld for three years. Three and a half years, in fact. And obviously, in an agricultural society, that, that would be devastating. That their whole livelihood depended on rain. No rain for over three years would lead to devastating famine. It would completely cripple this society. But what's vital for you and I to understand is that Baal was an agricultural deity. Okay, that this is the whole point. This is why the people found him so appealing. Because he supposedly controlled the weather and ensured the crops. Okay, that this was the allure of this false god. So the Lord goes onto Baal's turf... And he battles him in the realm that he supposedly controls. Can you see that? The Lord sends drought. This is what Baal is supposedly in control of. He's meant to make it rain. And yet it doesn't for, for three years. And the people would be crying out to Baal. Baal, save us, send the rain. But to no avail. There would be no rain. There would be no crops. And this is the Lord proving his supremacy. And he does this by comparing himself to Baal and proving him to be completely incompetent in his supposed speciality. And this is the main theme that runs throughout the entire narrative of Elijah. It's about Yahweh versus Baal. It's about comparative advertising. And the Lord is the clear winner over and over Again, he completely decimates Baal and he proves conclusively the futility and absurdity of exchanging the Lord for this pretender. Now, the first battle of this God war, as recorded in our text, was drought. And during this debilitating drought, the Lord had some unusual instructions for Elijah. He instructed Elijah to make an unexpected journey to an unexpected location to meet an unexpected heroine. And it's to this account that I'd like to shift our focus. Again, I want to draw out three lessons about faith from this account okay, that will help us to understand more deeply an essential element of our day-to-day -day Christian lives. Because as Christians, okay, we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Okay, we're saved by faith and we live by faith. So let's consider what this account has to teach you and I about faith. Both what it means and how it plays out in our day-to-day -day lives. So lesson number one. Faith obeys God's commands. Okay, faith obeys God's commands. Now, upon informing the king that famine was going to plague the land, Elijah is instructed by the Lord to go into hiding. And that leads to an obvious question. Why? Okay, why did he need to hide? Well, this is for 
two reasons. Reason one, for his protection. He would now have a target painted on his back. Jezebel particularly hated Elijah. And butchering prophets was one of her favorite hobbies. So the Lord provides what we could call a prophet protection program. Okay, so that's, that's the first reason. But there seems to be more at play in the prophet's hiding, which leads to the second reason, the withdrawing of God's words. We need to understand that Elijah is the prophet. He's God's mouthpiece to the people. He is both the bringer and the bearer of God's word. And hence, Elijah's hiding would spell the absence of the word of God in the life of Israel. So the Lord's judgment here is twofold. It's drought and it's the withholding of his words. So the Lord instructs Elijah to go and hide by the brook Cherith. Okay, this would provide water and the food would be supplied by ravens. So the Lord would sustain his prophet in miraculous ways. Okay, the, the principle here is that Elijah had a major role to play in the divine plan and until his work was completed, he would be protected. But I want you to notice a key detail in this supernatural provision that we probably tend to move past very quickly. The food was supplied by ravens. Now, this would have caused Israelites to cringe because ravens were unclean. Leviticus 11.15, okay, they were scavengers. And as I thought about that, uh, you know, the meat supplied to Elijah may not have been that appealing. It probably wasn't Scotch fillet steak. It could well have been roadkill. But the point is this. The Lord was ministering through an unlikely vessel. Okay, the, the raven is regarded as unclean. And this is a clue to the direction that our text is heading. Because after the brook dries up, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah again. That's verse 8. Very similar phraseology to verse 2. And the next instructions would have been shocking. Okay, he was told to go on an unexpected journey to an unexpected place to find someone very unexpected. Elijah was told to go to Zarephath. Where's that? Well, it's between Tyre and Zidon on the Mediterranean coast. Okay, so if you're looking at the map, it's on this side of Israel. Okay, it's about 130 kilometers from his current location. Now think about that. That's a long journey on foot in the middle of a famine when water is scarce. So there's one potential reason to be skeptical of this trip. But here's the most shocking detail. We need to understand that this place, it was, it was heathenville. It was pagan central. It was Gentile territory. It, it was the heartland of Baal worship. In fact, it was here where Jezebel's dad was the ruler. 1 Kings 16.31. So this was enemy heartland. That this was not where Elijah would have expected to go. If he had a hundred guesses, he would not have guessed Zarephath. This was an unexpected location. 
But just when Elijah thinks things couldn't get any more unexpected, the Lord gives his next instruction. Elijah, a widow is going to take care of you. In verse 9, the Lord informs his prophet that he has commanded a widow to sustain him. Now, in these times, a widow caring for Elijah in a famine would seem very far-fetched. Widow and sustain in the same sentence would have felt like an oxymoron. Because widows struggled to survive when there was no famine. How in the world could she provide for Elijah during this debilitating drought? This made no sense. Lord, I think the ravens are a more reliable source of provision. So here are the Lord's instructions. Take an unexpected journey to an unexpected location to meet an unexpected source of provision. But before we consider Elijah's response, we need to answer a question. It's a simple one. Why Zarephath? Why send him there? Weren't there widows in Israel? What was the Lord's intention? Well, the New Testament helps to answer this. Okay, Jesus mentions this place in Luke chapter 4, verses 24 to 26. And I've got this on your outline sheet. Okay, Jesus is speaking in Nazareth, that's his hometown. And he says this. And he said, verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, that's Elijah, When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land, but unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarapta, okay, that's that's our place, a city of Zidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Okay, so Jesus is addressing rejection in his home country. Okay, that's the big idea of his sermon, if you like. And he illustrates this rejection with our text, with 1 Kings chapter 17. Okay, there were many widows in Israel. Why weren't they used to provide for Elijah? Well, this is because the people of Israel had rejected the Lord. Okay, they had rejected him, so the Lord withdrew from them. So understand, Elijah's journey to Zarephath was an act of judgment upon Israel. Okay, that they had forfeited the blessing of the Lord at this moment, and hence a Gentile would be used by the Lord. So I say all of that to help us understand what, what's going on in this text and how it fits into the big picture of the Bible. But with those important foundations laid, let, let's now zoom in and consider the particular point of application, which is this. Faith obeys God's commandments. What does it look like to walk by faith? Okay, well, walk by faith is one of those Christian cliches. We tend to use it all the time. Brother, you need to walk by faith. What what do we mean by that? Okay, what does that look like practically? Well, it looks like obedience. It's submitting to and following God's word no matter what. And this is illustrated by Elijah, isn't it? That the Lord told him to make an unexpected journey to an unexpected location to meet an unexpected source of provision. 
And it doesn't take much imagination to present a case based on human logic as to why that was a bad idea. And yet, Elijah obeyed. And this was an act of faith. Humanly speaking, it made no sense. And yet such was his trust, such was his confidence in his God that he obeyed wholeheartedly. And my friend, this is a mark of true faith. Faith obeys God's commands. Now, when it comes to God's commandments, we need to understand that they are for our good. Sometimes when we think of commandments, we think, you know, God's just cruel, who doesn't want me to have any fun. But that's a wrong way to think about his commandments. They're actually a gracious gift because they reveal what's best for us. Okay? And this is where faith comes into the equation. We need to trust that God's commands are good for us. And it's for the best that we follow them. So let's think through a couple of examples. Okay, God says that we're not to have sex outside of marriage. Okay, this is not because he's some killjoy, okay, wanting to hold back something wonderful from us, but rather he knows that this is best reserved for marriage. He knows it'll be a glorious thing in marriage. That's how he designed it. But we need to trust him. We need to obey him. God says, don't marry someone who's not a Christian. By implication, don't date someone who's not a Christian. Okay, we need to trust that God knows best and obey what he says. Even when you meet that unsaved person and you think he or she's the one, that they're the perfect spouse. God says something different. We need to obey and trust him. God says you should discipline your children even though society opposes it. We have to have faith in God's parenting model. God says you should be in church consistently. Walking by faith will obey. It will prioritize church. Will come even when it's hard. Even when there's other things that you could be doing. And there's example after example that could be listed. Faith obeys God's word. Okay, this is what it means to walk by faith. That the faith walk is a life of obedience. It's doing what God says, even when that's not easy, even when that's not convenient, and even when it's costly. Now, as I speak, I want you to understand that I'm not talking about saving faith. Okay? Our obedience cannot save us. Okay? Our obedience doesn't make us right with God because we would need perfect obedience and that's beyond us but rather what i'm talking about is evidence of saving faith i'm talking about what the faith life looks like it's a life of obedience it's trusting what god says it's having the confidence that god's way is best and obeying him even when that may not be appealing obeying him even when your flesh says can't we do something different that looks like so much fun Walking by faith is about obedience. And my friend, your obedience or lack thereof says a lot about the strength of your faith and the quality of your faith walk. And understand, the more that you obey God, the stronger your faith will become. 
You know, obedience is like the weight reps in the gym. It's the bicep curls. It's the bench press. It, it's building your strength slowly but surely. Faith is proven and strengthened by obedience. That's lesson one. Lesson two, faith depends on God's word completely. Faith depends on God's word completely. You know, this widow from Zarephath that we read about in our text, because she's the Lord's chosen vessel to provide for Elijah. She's also an illustrative instrument to reveal vividly the inadequacy of Baal. She's quite an extraordinary lady. And yet, we know very little about her. We're not even told her name. We aren't sure whether she was a follower of the Lord at the beginning of this scene. You know, I think there's evidence that she was at least sympathetic. But I would probably argue it was even more because, as we'll see, her response to Elijah is astonishing. And it's hard to imagine such a reaction without a work of grace in her heart. But, but so much remains unknown. But what we do learn in the text says much about the quality of this lady. Now what I'd like you to do is try and engage your imagination. Try and put yourself in her situation. She was in a real predicament. Her husband had passed away. She was left to fend for herself. She, she was left to, to raise their son on their own. And, and no doubt her life was very hard, even when it was raining. You know, perhaps she had a small garden or, or a small vineyard that enabled her to make at least a little money. But things were not looking good for her. So things were not looking good for her son as this drought intensified. But what a horrible predicament. And we meet her in the text preparing to make her last meal. No doubt the previous months, that the previous weeks have been difficult. Meals have become less and less frequent. They've become smaller and smaller. They had been longing for rain, but there hadn't been one drop. It was barren. That the crops were all shriveled up. There was little hope of life. And this widow and her son were going to eat one more meal and then they would curl up in a ball and die. Imagine the emotional torment. Here's this poor mom. She must have felt like a failure. I can't even keep my child alive. I can't provide for my son. You know, the hopes and dreams that she had for her boy had been dashed to a thousand pieces starvation had gripped them and it was tightening its grip that was her predicament completely hopeless okay and all of this is bouncing around in her mind as she's collecting some sticks so she could make her final meal and it's at this time with all of this going on that she meets elijah Elijah had made the, the long and difficult journey. No, no doubt he was parched. So he asks this lady for a drink. Now, I think you and I would understand if this dear lady got a little bit upset or got a, a little dismissive at this request. So listen here. I don't know you. I've never met you. 
I'm trying to get ready to cook my final meal. Me and my son are about to die. Getting water for you is very low on my list of priorities. We almost expect such a response. But not from this lady. What did she do? Well, we're told she went to get a vessel to provide water for Elijah. And perhaps this was a sign that the Lord told Elijah to look for. We can't be sure. But as she went to get a vessel, Elijah made another request. We see it in verse 11. Can you please get me some bread? Now, if this was you, how would you respond to that request? I think if she got quite upset, we would be sympathetic. You can imagine, really? Water isn't enough for you? Now you want my bread? Okay, I'm about to die. That This is my last meal and you want to take it? You know, if anger come exploding out like a volcano, we, we wouldn't be surprised. But, but notice her response. It's anything but. You know, she's meek. She's gracious. And she merely explains her situation to Elijah. She says, look, I don't have much left. I'm preparing my final meal. And she says in verse 12, as the Lord thy God liveth. Okay, this is an oath. Okay, this is her saying, you know, I'm telling the truth. I'm not in a position to help. She's calm. She's gracious. And Elijah responds. He says in verse 13, fear not. Fear not and be not dismayed. This is the great divine comfort. Fear not. It's going to be okay. I want you to, to go and make me bread with what you have left. Because the Lord's going to provide for you in an amazing way. Okay? If you make me bread, your flour and your oil will not run out during this drought. That was the promise from the Lord. So what would she do? Would she trust the Lord? Would she have confidence in God's word? What what would you do in such a situation? Well, notice verse 15. Okay, this is a wonderful response. We could call this a faith reaction. Okay, she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. Okay, she, she went, she used her flour, used the oil, made a little food for Elijah. You know, I wonder what was running through her mind as she began to need it. Was she thinking, you know, I hope, I hope this is true. Otherwise, I'm in a lot of trouble. You know, she gave it to Elijah. You know, was she scared? Were there doubts? We, we, we don't know. But her response is a wonderful illustration of faith. Because faith is confidence in God's word and promises. Okay, faith is trusting that God will do what he says. It's relying on God completely. It's being all in on God. And this is illustrated by this dear widow. Okay, understand she staked everything on God's word. Okay, if God didn't fulfill his promise, she was going to die. Okay, she, she wagered everything on the veracity of God. And my friend, that is true faith. This is an illustration of what we call saving faith. This is the means through which one is saved from sin. Now, as I said at the table, faith is not what saves us, but it's the channel through which God saves us. 
And saving faith is staking everything upon Jesus Christ. It's relying completely on him to provide salvation. It's confidence in him and his work on the cross. It's trusting that Jesus is God. And that he is the only way of salvation. It's placing our complete confidence in him. Just like this lady did in the text. And my friend, this is the only way to be saved. And I wonder, have you ever embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you ever repented of your sin? That means turned from your sin. You've acknowledged that you've turned from it and placed your confidence, your trust in Christ to save you. Okay, you are all in on God to provide salvation, trusting Him completely. Are you staking everything on Christ? Because that's the only way to be saved. You know, saving faith depends on God completely. Like this dear widow, do you trust the Lord? Do you have confidence in his word? Do you believe that he will save you like he says he will? Are you willing to wager everything on God? Because that's the essence of saving faith. That's the second lesson that we learn. And lesson number three faith is a daily necessity. Okay, faith is a daily necessity. You know, Christians are not only saved by faith, but we live by faith. Okay, faith is not only the means that graciously brings us into Christ, but it's also how we continue to live. We live by faith. And this is illustrated in this account. The Lord promised this widow that he would supply flour and oil if she provided for Elijah. And he promised that he would continue to do so until the famine is over. Okay, so she had the initial faith. She provided for Elijah. But I want you to notice that this required ongoing faith. Okay, this was a continuous thing. Because nowhere in the text do we read that the Lord sent her a truckload of flour and a vat of oil. Okay, he didn't supply bulk. He, he didn't give her Costco membership. But rather every day that the little jar of flour and the little bottle of oil was replenished. This is verse 16. Notice what it says. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spake by Elijah. So every day she cooked for her son, for Elijah, and for herself, and she had to trust that there would be more for tomorrow. And there always was. Every morning functioned as a fresh episode of God's faithfulness. But this required ongoing faith. Now, two things to pay attention to from this particular detail. Okay, number one. This, is a this was a daily reminder that God could provide, but Baal could not. Okay, here they were in Zarephath. This is Baal heartland. Baal had the home ground advantage, and yet he's completely hopeless. The land was desolate. There was no rain. There was no crops. Baal had failed. And he was the Lord's servant. He, he was Elijah 
and he still had food. And this whole incident, it showed the widow, it showed her son, and it showed all who were watching that Yahweh is the one true and living God. He alone is all powerful. And this was comparative advertising, which revealed clearly the fraud that is Baal. The second thing that it teaches us that we need to pay attention to is for us as Christians, faith is a daily necessity. We, we walk by faith each day. Okay, God doesn't give us everything that we need for this life at the moment of our conversion. He, he doesn't tell us everything that we're going to encounter up front, which is a blessing because that would scare us. But rather like the widow, we're called to trust that God will give us what we need to make it through each individual day. So, so faith is not merely something that we need to be brought into Christ. Okay? It's not only the means through which we're converted. But we need faith. We, we need trust. We need confidence in God every day. We are to live by faith. Okay? We, we need the confidence that God will provide our needs for the day ahead. We need to trust that God will help us overcome the temptations of the day. We need the assurance that God's grace is enough to help us through whatever we may face in that day. We need to have the faith that doing it God's way is the best way throughout that day. We need the confidence that God will lead and guide us through the day. We need to trust that God's word is sufficient for that day and so on. Okay? It is a daily thing. Okay? Faith is a daily necessity for the Christian. It's not just a once off. Okay? It's, it's not just something that we need in the big moments of life. We're to live by faith. We need faith in every moment of every day. Because usually God will give us enough flour and enough oil to get us through one day and not much more. Why? Why does he do that? Well, that's to ensure that we don't become self-sufficient. That we continue to rely on him just like the widow at Zarephath. My friend, faith is a daily necessity. We walk by faith. That is the third lesson. And my friend... If you truly know God, okay, if you truly know God as he's revealed in the Bible, you will know that you can trust him. Okay, we don't have to have trust issues with God like we do with people in this world. Because the God of the Bible, he's not like Baal. He's not like any other of the millions of gods that man has invented throughout history. He's not like mankind. But, the, but our God has proven himself over and over again. Okay? He has proven that he is dependable, that, that he is trustworthy, that, that he is the supreme one, that there's nobody like him. Okay? He's proved that again and again throughout history. And he proved it conclusively at the cross 
that there's nobody more worthy of our trust and confidence. Because God the Father sent his one and only Son to die for sinners. To die for those who were his enemies. For, for those who rebelled against him. For those who were completely and utterly unworthy. No God that man has invented has ever done such a thing. No one has even come close. And my friend, that proves beyond a doubt that there's nobody or nothing like our God. Nobody loves you or nobody cares for you like him. He proved that at the cross. And he's worthy of our trust and confidence in every single area of life. And may we, by his grace, trust and obey him. In every realm of our life. For he alone is worthy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I, I do thank you for who you are. you are. You are a great God. You are trustworthy. You are dependable. And uh, who else would we want to place our faith in? Lord, if there is one here this morning who has never uh, placed Saving faith in Christ, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation. May they have the courage to seek someone out to talk about this more. And for those of us who know Christ, help us to remember that we live by faith. And help us, Lord, to, to live a life of obedience. That is what the faith walk looks like practically. Please help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.